even right up to this evening. And so in this Finding Sanctuary speaker series, you will get to hear from four dynamic women, the first tonight, who will reflect publicly on the ways in which their lives and work meet at the intersections of faith-based advocacy and social justice for the common good. This series is spearheaded by the Interfaith Engagement Program at Duke Chapel under the strong and creative leadership of Associate Dean Christy Lore Sapp in collaboration with the Penny Pilgrim George Women's Leadership Initiative. And so we thank them for their support and we thank all of you for being here and showing up and showing us your physical support. Uh, this evening for this important talk. What I'd like to do now is turn it over to Associate Dean Sapp to introduce our speaker for this evening. Let's welcome Christy. Thank you. As Dean Powery said, this um, topic tonight has real relevance and about an hour before an hour ago, um, we received a prayer request via the chapel's online prayer submission format in which somebody requested prayer for a local refugee family who is experiencing inhospitality um, by a neighbor who reported them to the authorities because they looked strange. But welcoming the stranger is a key tenet of many of our faith traditions. And, um, and that is what every Campus of Refuge um, at its heart is about. And so um, allow me to um, again welcome you to this, the first in this speaker series um, in which we've invited four dynamic and religiously diverse women to campus to work at the intersection of principle-based advocacy and social justice. I'd like to put in just a quick plug for the other series, the other speakers in the series. There are bookmarks available on the podium at the, not the back, the back of this space um, at, as you entered that introduce our other two events in this series. But just for a, a quick introduction to them, on March 8th at 6 p.m. right here, we'll be welcoming Heidi Newmark, um, Lutheran pastor from New York City and Rabbi Sarah Posca Orlo from Harvard, who will share their work creating sanctuary with marginalized age groups within the LGBTQ plus community. And on Tuesday, April 18th, we'll have sick activist and filmmaker and social change agent Valerie Carr here. Um, she'll be addressing issues of gender, religion, and race in overcoming hate in America. And so we hope that you'll jo join us for those two events as well. But tonight, um, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Dia Abdo here. Um, Dia is a remarkable woman who embodies authentic, principled leadership in the spirit of Penny Pilgrim George and the Women's Leadership Initiative that helped to co-sponsor this. Dia joins us from Guilford College in Greensboro where she serves as the Chair of Creative Writing in the English Department. Her research and teaching focus on Arab women writers and Islamic feminists. And while her list of scholarly articles and publications and awards is quite impressive, um, we've invited her here tonight to talk about an issue that's much more personal for her sanctuary for refugee communities. Herself a refugee to Jordan, um, this is also an important part of her own story. 
As the founder of and director of Every Campus a Refuge, Dr. Abdo challenges colleges and universities to extend boundary-crossing hospitality to strangers and those in need of a safe haven. This initiative was inspired by Pope Francis's call for every parish to host one refugee family. It's been guided by Guilford College's Quaker traditions, and it's been am animated by the Arabic Islamic word for campus, haram, haram, which means sanctuary. Sorry. <laughs> I've studied Hebrew and Greek, but Arabic's next on my list. Sanctuary can be interpreted to mean a holy place as well as a place of sanctuary or of safety or refuge. And the work that Dr. Abdo does, um, I think, embodies both. It's holy work and it's work for the greater good. So I am honored to welcome you here to Duke Chapel tonight, and I'm grateful that you're willing to share a bit of this story with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Am I clear? The voice is good. Lower. Cheryl says lower. But do this so that you can see my beautiful face. Lovely. Um, I've never spoken in a chapel before. I'll be sure to either mind my language or not mind it. I haven't decided yet. Um, it's really wonderful to be here with you all. Um, first, I'm going to talk about what inspired the program, Every Campus a Refuge. And then I'm going to walk you through the steps that your campus can take to become a refuge. So hopefully we've got a lot of Duke students here, maybe students from other campuses. This is very doable and really wonderful. The refugee crisis is a perpetual crisis. As long as there's been conflict, there have been refugees. I myself am the child of Palestinian refugees, their first, born in a country right across the river from the one they fled. We were lucky. My family escaped the drudgeries of the refugee camps to live a life of tenuous citizenry in the alternate homeland. Others around the world are not so lucky. Many are settled where they initially arrive, their tents simply morphing into the sturdier, stiflingly close, zinc-roofed rooms of the shanty towns. Still many others never complete the perilous journey. Countless refugees have drowned at sea in capsized boats and rafts, asphyxiated in the cargo holds of otherwise seaworthy and roadworthy vessels, succumbed to the limitations of their bodies, the elements, and the relentless indifference, if not cruelty, of the watching and waiting human race. Indeed, in the past seven years, the human race has been doing much watching and waiting as hundreds of thousands of displaced and dispossessed humans, millions really, the highest number since World War II make their way out of the conflict zones of the Middle East and Africa, up and across the Arab world and Europe. And then there was Aylan Kurdi. Remember him? His little body, very seriously dressed for a dark and serious passage, moored by death on the shores of a resort town in Turkey, broke our hearts. It was visual proof of a horror we knew existed, for the news told us this every day but rarely saw in the media, for when is a violent death so delicate, so gentle, so unassuming, so non-threatening as to be so easily shareable? At that time, in the fall of 2015, Europe's conscience quickened for a brief moment. Hungary, gatekeeping for itself in Western Europe, 
temporarily eased its chokehold on thousands of refugees trying to make their way north. Germany temporarily accepted with open arms the streaming multitudes. England anemically grumbled about quotas. And the Pope called on every parish in Europe to host one refugee family. But what did academic institutions do with the broken hearts, with the dead and dying bodies, with the endless convoy of humanity trying to make its way from misery to the unknown? What is our responsibility as teachers, students, and administrators of higher learning? What is our complicity as institutions built on the lands of the dispossessed and displaced? Our go-to is to objectively educate, raise consciousness, lift awareness. Surely, these are more than admirable goals, for what is nobler than the desire to impart knowledge, broaden horizons, and engender meaningful, productive, and useful conversation, to challenge and engage. Fundamentally, however, these are endeavors firmly grounded in and ones which facilitate the detachment and depoliticization of academic institutions. They are ensconced in the life of the innocent mind, and if we are lucky, they might extend to the belief that the mind will influence the soul, which will influence the body, which will then do. Please don't misunderstand me. I love teaching. I'm the kind of teacher who all but bounces off the classroom walls. However, my annual post-summer, because I always feel the worst, the worst massacres seem to happen over the summer, my post-summer annual return to the daily routine of college life had long been steeped in a malaise that drains, that leadens the legs and keeps them off the walls and on the ground. That deepening sorrow had much to do with how little I felt I was able to do outside my metaphoric institutional walls for I was getting tired of vigils, of panels and teachings, of clicking the button or signing my name, don't forget your institution, on an online petition or letter. That fall in 2015, I just wanted to be someone living in Europe who owned a car to be part of that, long, of that not long enough convoy of vehicles making its way south to carry back up the thousands too long convoy of humans making their way north. But I was in Greensboro, the gate city. And then a simple thought circled around. I might not be in Europe with a car, but I am in another popular refugee destination with something even better, a college campus. And the thought circled in. What if we saw the university or college campus not as a disembodied beehive of thinkers and learners, but as a place, as much a body as it is a mind? And of course, a campus is a body. It's a body politic, a self-sufficient, self-governing, self-regulating city. The, world, the word for a university or college campus in Arabic is haram, al-haram al-jami'i. It means a physical space that is both sacred and inviolable, a sanctuary. A refuge. And then the thought settled. If we saw the college and university campus in this other embodied way, we could, could we not then expand our response to the refugee crisis beyond the panels, the food and clothes drives, the vigils? If the EU and the UN have called on European and Arab nations to take in their quota of refugees, and if the Pope called on every parish to take in a refugee family, could we not then see the college or university campus as similarly responsible as a country or a parish and capable of hosting refugees. 
What I'm suggesting here is not your average college or university move. I'm not suggesting that universities should, sim should simply sponsor refugee students to obtain higher education, a limited action which benefits far fewer individuals, generally those with the least physical and emotional needs. What I'm suggesting entails a radical reimagining of what a college or university campus can and should do, a physical place of refuge in times of crisis. If a campus hosts a refugee family with small children and elders especially, then that homes much larger numbers and ones with greater physical needs. Campuses are organically well suited for this. They have housing, cafeterias, clinics, and plenty of human resources, expertise, and connections to provide financial, material, legal, social, and political assistance. In fact, a college or university has more human and material resources than most other organizations. And even though this move is not a traditionally educational gesture, it is educational to the core. What better education for the university and college students than direct engagement in caring for their fellow humans rather than simply learning about the crisis or raising funds for it? What better skills than humaneness and principled problem solving? What better values than justice and community? Students can engage this effort in countless ways, including helping the family with language acquisition or the children with homework or acting as much needed cultural brokers as the family navigates his way through the resettlement process. And very traditionally, refugee family members could also be welcome to attend college classes. It's an incredible opportunity for everybody involved. Imagine it. A community comes together, drawing on its many skills, resources, and expertise in law, in medicine, in language, in advocacy, in planning, to give a family that desperately needs a, needs a home a safe refuge. However, this has to be done very carefully without exploiting or taking advantage of the people that we give refuge to. It must be done with intentionally crafted attention to their agency, humanity, and needs and integrity. At Guilford College, where I teach, for example, where we might righteously see these efforts as an extension of our institution's core values and our historical legacy as part of the Underground Railroad, we must also rightly see them as necessitated by another legacy we have inherited, that of empire building, colonialism, and global politics, which have displaced and dispossessed the indigenous people of this land on which Guilford is built and others around the globe. As an institution, we must engage in these meaningful acts of solidarity while simultaneously subjecting them to rigorous self-awareness and criticism. The United States, sadly, is accepting a very low number of refugees, but all of them will be heading to a place where there are college and university campuses. If every campus in the United States hosted one refugee family, this could mean the relatively quick, easy, and expensive temporary resettlement of thousands of refugees and it will give local resettlement organizations the needed space and time to do their jobs well. This is especially important now with the looming threat of the reduction of funds for resettlement agencies. In the face of this multifaceted disaster, one with deep and far-reaching political, social, economic, and psychological damages, the cost of hosting one refugee family on campus grounds is truly minimal. We are currently hosting an 11-member family. We managed to raise everything for the household in which they live. Three of the children are, are under the age of five, so that includes car seats, strollers, everything. 
we had only to spend $300 out of our ECAR fund budget. Everything else was raised by the community. Its reward is astronomical. Refugees would find a small country whose citizens share the burden, responsibility, and joy of giving them a campus, a refuge. So what I'd like to talk about now, and feel free to take pictures of the slides as I'm showing, as I'm showing them to you, because that'll give you a sense of how to go about becoming a campus refuge. So just very quickly, some numbers and definitions. There are millions of refugees. Most of them come from Syria, Afghanistan, and Somalia. The UN defines a refugee as someone who has been forced to flee. This person has a well-founded fear of persecution. They cannot return to their country of origin. And according to the White House, well, the former White House, the US refugee <laughs> vetting process is very careful and very lengthy, which is why this ban is disastrous because it means that many people who are in the pipeline waiting to come in will now time out of this very long process that takes up to several years for Syrian refugees. So this is a picture of, and you mentioned the term welcoming the stranger, radical hospitality, right? The, the, the taking the stranger in the stranger into your space is a concept that's very integral to many faith traditions. Here's the Guilford group when we first decided we were going to do this. So at its core, Every Campus a Refuge is really about how we steward our campus space. At Guilford, stewardship is a core value. How do we steward campus resources in ways that connect with our other core, core values of diversity, community, integrity, justice, etc.? So how do we steward space and resources within and without the institution's borders, right? So it's not just folks who are on our campus, but folks who are connected to us through alumni, through friends, our Quaker meetings around us. Why we need it, as I mentioned, there are thousands, millions of refugees um, seeking resettlement. Um, there are campuses all over the world. So if campuses could radically reimagine their space as a space of refuge, then that could very, very, um, very much assist with resettling many more people in need of resettlement. Um, given the new executive or orders, as I said, the refugee resettlement agencies will likely have their funding reduced, which means that this is the best time for campuses to step up. Refugee resettlement agencies are already, even before, were overworked, overtaxed, under-resourced. Refugees come into the U.S., they used to come into the U.S., with no more than $1,000 of a stipend forever that they would use to pay rent, to buy food, um, and all of those other things. So whatever we can provide is supplemental and now more than ever much needed. Quality. So imagine if you're a refugee coming in traumatized and you immediately have to think about where you have to live, how much rent you have to pay, the utilities that you have to pay for, enrolling your children in school. You're already traumatized. This is even, it does not allow you time to breathe. So every campus a refuge, the way it functions, is that we provide housing free rent, free utilities, as much support as we can. We believe this allows for a softer landing, like more time for, for adjustment, emotionally, psychologically, physically. So it's healthier for folks not to have to worry immediately about how much money, little money they have and how much they need to spend it on the things that they need to live. It's also important because it creates long-lasting ties. So, so far we've hosted four cases. I'll talk about them. We are still 
very much in touch with all of the folks that we had the honor and privilege of having as guests on our campus. The first person that we hosted, we still see him regularly. In fact, now he is acting as interpreter and translator for our most recent case. Um, so it's a really wonderful way to build community um, and incredibly rewarding. Shaping public discourse, this is especially important. Campuses play important roles in their communities. They're beacons of hope, but also of common sense, one hopes. And so when a campus says out loud, hard, all the time, that there's nothing to fear from refugees who themselves are fleeing terrorism, right? If we bust myths, but if we put our money where our mouth is, and we take refugees into our own space, that sends a powerful message and shapes, I believe, public discourse. And this is something that we need now, especially with this exceptional fear-mongering, xenophobia, Islamophobia, Arabophobia, immigrant-phobia, refugee-phobia. This is the time to not say, let's have conversations about fear, but let's practice empathy, compassion, kindness, radical hospitality. Educating our students. So this is a really important part of every campus a refuge because we want it to be self-sustaining, right? That the folks that come through our doors don't simply get to um, be hosted on our campus, but also shape the ways in which our students take this forward with them. Um, I think of every campus a refuge as a form of place-based education. In other words, you learn about what it's like to be a refugee in Greensboro. And then how do you resettle in Greensboro? Right? If you do this in Duke, then it's in Durham. So a place-based education that's connected to real people teaches our students about refugee issues, resettlement issues, forced displacement issues that are connected to a, a space and a place. And that stuff sticks. So when my volunteer student takes a family for their Medicaid appointment and learns that it's a problem if you break your glasses because on Medicaid, they send you your glasses two months later, that's a problem, right? I mean, we're gonna have more problems now. Um, but but that's, that's a way to identify gaps in the system and to work towards principal problem solving of those gaps. Um, what's really exciting and happening at Guilford right now is that we are going to pilot an Every Campus a Refuge minor. So 16 credits revolving around Every Campus a Refuge. And the students will take a course where they learn about forced displacement, refugeeism, and immigration. They'll take a course that centralizes the, vo the voices of refugees and immigrants. This is important because if we're to do this in a way that uplifts the agency and autonomy and the integrity of the human beings that we're hosting, their voices have to be central. We can't be talking about them and speaking about them and saving them. Uh, they'll take a course on community building, advocacy, and organizing. So basically what, who, how, and then, of course, they'll take the ECAR course where they do. You do the work of resettlement. You do the work of refugee um, assistance. Um, they'll volunteer with our Every Campus a Refuge guests. Um, and they'll do other things that allow them to learn about what's happening in Greensboro and think about how they can advocate for refugees and how they can problem solve um, in principled ways. Um, or address gaps in resettlement. Beyond the minor, um, our community is involved in constant learning, right? So when we, we do the traditional things, we have film screenings, we have panels, we have things like that. Um, but our community learns 
holistically as we embark on this project. Um, and of course, we're transformed by the skills and the knowledge that the, the hosted um, guests bring to our community. Um, very traditionally, our volunteers all get trained um, by our Refugee Resettlement Agency, and if you want to do ESL training, you get ESL training. So there are lots of ways in which our students and our community members get traditional and non-traditional education ex educational experiences. Um, I really enjoy the ways in which our students have been involved in disciplinary work. So I have students who have never volunteered uh, for Every Campus a Refuge, but they've been involved in other ways. So producing artwork for Every Campus a Refuge so that we don't have, we don't, we're not using the same tired images. You'll have a postcard. This was a painting made by an English major and a religious studies major. Uh, and I said, uh, Laura, I want you to paint moments of arrival for me. And so she came up with a series of studies that were really lovely. Um, we had students who created students, I mean, what better use of an English major skill than research and writing, right? So they produced a lot of the content for evercampusrefuge.org. Um, I had students who did podcasts, so they learned about radio editing and things like that. And really exciting, uh, we received a grant to do research on the impact of Every Campus a Refuge and compare it to refugees coming to Greensboro, but not through ECAR, right? So are we actually providing a softer landing? Are we doing what we're saying? How can we improve? So social sciences, research methods. So this is some artwork that I wanted to show. So if you're interested in becoming an ECAR campus, here's what you need to do. First of all, identify if the program suits your campus. More likely than not, if you're a campus that has clubs or organizations, if you're a campus that owns houses, apartments, things like that, even if you don't, I mean, they might not be right on your campus, they might be across the street, then you're a good campus for an, to be an ECAR campus. Get approval from your administration, and we'll talk about ways to do that. Partner with a local refugee resettlement agency. You are not a refugee resettlement agency. That's not your job. Your job is to partner with a local refugee resettlement agency and to supplement and complement what they do. You need to make sure that your community buys in to this project. You host the family and then think about post-hosting relationships. So think about a potential space on your campus. On Guilford's campus, we're small, we're tiny. I mean, we're 2,000 students, but we have a plethora of available housing options. So we have apartments that are connected to some buildings, we have dormitories, but Guilford own, also owns houses, right? I think Duke must own houses, I'm sure. Um, so think about a space on your campus that might work. When we first started this, we thought about a dorm, and then folks said, but who wants to live with college students? And who does, really? I mean, I don't. But, um, but when we talked to the Refugee Resettlement Agency, she said there are some folks coming in, 19, 20, who would love to live in a dorm. Singles, couples, so don't rule anything out. Don't assume. Talk to your Refugee Resettlement Agency. Find out what they need. We know that in Greensboro, affordable housing is incredibly sparse. I mean, that is one of the reasons that ECAR is really powerful in Greensboro. The most recent family that we're hosting of 11 members would have would had to be separated. If we weren't able to take them in, they would have had to separate them because there wasn't a house big enough that would have been affordable at that scale to host that family. Um, identify how much funds the institution can contribute. So at Guilford, that means the house. We get the house, we get utilities, right? Um, can your campus do that? If not, can you raise money for that? And oftentimes, they might give you a break. So think about that. Um, Identify how much funds you can raise. There are lots of clubs and organizations on your campus that you might be able to sort of um, get money from. So think about those, the stakeholders. 
um, identify the skills, passions, and assets of those stakeholders. Again, this is a community of practice, right? A passionate community of practice. So think about all of those members of the community and what they can bring and create a committee, right, of people who can contribute this or that. Think about an institutional home. So it's hard sometimes to think about this program, like where would it live? It can't just live with a faculty member. That's exhausting, right? If a faculty member starts as a student member, where can it live? Can it live in a club? Can it live in an organization? At Guilford, it lives in the Center for Principled Problem Solving. So do you have a place on your campus that, that's like that, community engagement, engaged teaching, right? There are lots of you know, programs, departments like that on campuses. Approach them and see if that's something that they'd like to do. If you mobilize the existing campus resources and potentially available funds, this could be done very inexpensively. As I said, we spent $300 of our budget last time. Administration approval. So you'll have to meet with your president. Now, you won't be as lucky as I was because I just walked into Jane Fernandez's office and said, I want a house. And she said, okay. Um, so likely that might not happen here. But what you could do is think about a petition. So Agnes Scott, which is an ECAR campus, they did it through a petition to their president, Kish. And I, I remember them telling me that they had hundreds of signatures. And then when they showed up, she's like, oh, no, that's great. I was going to tell you yes anyway, right? So ask first, right? But if not, then get people on board. Find those like-minded faculty, students, maybe even donors, board members. See if they want to um, mobilize with you to approach your administration. Can a club or an organization lead the charge so it's not just one person out there on the line? And you always want to emphasize it as a community engagement service learning project. So at Rollins, which is an ECAR campus in Florida, they're calling it refugees in residence, right? So, I mean, you know, whatever, however you have to spin it <laughs> to get your administration on board, uh, another campus in Ohio calls it something else. Um, so just think about rhetoric. Partner with a local refugee agency. This is important. Reach out to your local refugee agency. I think here in Durham, you might you have Church World Services, which is our partner, but you also have World Relief. Great. Talk to those folks. See what they need. Listen to them. Because what we don't want to do is charge in and say, we've got it figured out. Right? You might not have it figured out. In fact, we don't, which is why we need everybody's help. Discuss with them what a partnership would look like, and then usually they'll give you a task list and say, okay, when you host refugee family, these are the things that we need you to do. So take a look at that list. Is that something that you can manage? Foster community investment. This is very important even if you weren't hosting refugees on your campus. Educating, informing, as we said, very noble, important. Hopefully we move from learning to doing. Um, but begin with learning. Panels, write for your newspaper, uh, get, get your refugee resettlement agency uh, people to come to campus and give informational talks. Film screenings um, are really a great way to capture an audience. And then from all of those um, events that we had on our campus for a whole semester, I developed lists of people who were interested, and that's where my core group of volunteers came from to begin with. Um, community continued. So when you think about your campus community, it's very important to remember that it's not just within the campus borders. One of my favorite partnerships is with our local co-op, Deep Roots Market, who reached out to me and said, this is a great project. We'd like to provide all of the initial groceries and toiletries for, the for every family that you host. And since that time, every time a campus has become a ca an Every Campus Refuge chapter, the Deep Roots Market person reaches out to the local co-op in that campus's area and connects them. 
So think about all the little networks that can build. Um, if you think about the, cam the campus as, you know, it has lots of tendrils. Where are the tendrils? Reach out for those and find them. Hosting. Um, so I'll talk about that. We at Guilford, it was very quick. We decided we were going to do this in September. We hosted our first case in January, and we've been hosting um, refugees on our campus ever since. We never talk about who we're hosting while they're on our campus. When they move off our campus, when they graduate, that's when we say, this it was one person from this country. Um, and usually, uh, not usually, always, we have their permission to do that. So our first case was a Ugandan man. We hosted him for five months. That was really wonderful because he had um, the ability, well, I went to our catering company um, at the cafeteria and I said, uh, can you donate a meal plan? And they said, yes, of course. So the, this person ate three meals a day for the whole semester. Think about it, a meal plan is a blip on their budget, it's nothing, right? For this person, it's, that's a lot, right? That, saves, that saved him a lot of money. So think about those ways that where you can just go around and say, can I get this, can I get that? Um, our second case was a Syrian family. Our third case was an emergency hosting. We got a call from our refugee resettlement agency and they said, we have a seven member family coming in. They need very specific housing requirements because of medical needs, there's nowhere. And so we're very quickly able to find a space for them on campus. And then our fourth and current case is an 11 member family who are gonna stay with us until May. Um, they came two weeks ago. This is important for us to maintain the integrity of the program. When um, we host refugees, of course they arrive off the plane. Um, they're usually coming in from the refugee camp and they arrive in New York or Chicago and then they come to Greensboro. So they haven't seen much in terms of, they, they don't know anything about Greensboro generally. Um, and so of course we welcome them, but then they're told about the program and they're given a choice whether they'd like to participate or not. All of our volunteers sign confidentiality and privacy agreements. We never release information about where they live, who they are, anything like that. The only people who know where they live, what their names are, are our trained volunteers. They have to be trained volunteers by the Refugee Resettlement Agency because they have to be trained according to the Refugee Resettlement Agency's standards. So they all, they all get background checked, they all sign. Um, and this is also very important. Uh, we never, in all of the time that we've hosted, have never asked any of the folks that we've hosted to participate in interviews, to participate in, I mean, right, it's not an exhibition. So we avoid any kind of giving them false choices, like, hey, would you, and we got a lot of requests from Glamour Magazine, like some weird requests. And we're like, no, I mean, because I, ca I can't ask someone who's a guest, right, can you do this? Because again, that's a false choice. Um, and the point is not, it's not a dog and pony show, right? Um, so keep that in mind. Um, general guidelines of hosting, we set up the house according to the standards of the agency, we provide a welcome sheet. We also create a lease, right? There's no rent or utilities, but it's practice in what it's like to rent a house in, in, this, in this area. Um, and depending on the time frame, the stay can vary. So I want you to think about your campus. Maybe you've only got a space for two months. That's great. Maybe it's only a month. That's great too. So I don't want anybody to say, but we can't provide a house for four or five months. This is a flexible initiative. Whatever works for your campus, you should really go for. Um, we did tell our public safety officers. We gave them information so that they can keep our guests safe and be aware um, of what's going on. Um, and this last thing is really important. Uh, I get a lot, asked a lot about risk and liability. 
Um, our college insurance covers every campus of refuge. It's a college program. So chances are that your insurance will cover this program. They cover study abroad. That's scary. I went on study abroad. That was terrifying. I mean, it was fun, but you know, I mean, there are risks involved. Um, so, so this is not risky. Your college insurance should cover it. Um, I like to think of Every Campus a Refuge as an equitable program because we welcome all members of our community. We have staff, spouses, partners of staff. Um, our president's husband, Jim Fernandez, is a trained volunteer, and he's a very active volunteer. Um, so we have staff, we have faculty, partners of faculty. Um, we have students, we have alumni, we have community members who are connected to Guilford in some way, even if it's just they live across the street and they like us. Um, so if you are on a campus, think about the potential also of collaborating with other campuses. Some of our volunteers come from Bennett College down the road. Our volunteers are trained, as I said, they get background check. Um, an Im important takeaways from the training is focusing on the strength-based cycle, which is that you want to um, engender, sustain, enrich autonomy, agency, choice. Um, you don't want to create the deficit cycle where you're constantly fixing problems or um, just rushing in to help. Um, you want to make sure that folks know how to use the bus so that they can get themselves wherever they need to get themselves. This is a picture of the training. So our volunteers do a lot of stuff. They set up the house, they collect donations and raise funds, they welcome at the airport. So if you're a faculty member thinking, oh my God, this is a lot. It is a lot. But if you use your entire community, it's not. Everybody gets to do something. Everybody on our campus, at least, is very happy to do something. Um, and What's great about this is that we utilize the volunteers' skills, passions, assets. So it's really an asset-based community. Everybody brings their skills and assets to this practice, right? What are you passionate about? What can you do? Um, what would you like to do? And everybody gets a chance to be invested and involved. There are, the, this is, I think, um, the second Syrian family, or the first. Uh, here are volunteers creating a little herb garden for the first Syrian family that we hosted in the Guilford Woods, playing soccer. Um, so, campus resources, oh my God. I mean, when you think about how much a campus has and how much of it is laying dormant, nobody's using it, it's, it's actually, you know, I mean, it's, it's a shame. Um, and I tell this all the time, my favorite story about campus resources is when a, a, a security, a public safety officer came up to me, her name is Rhonda Johnson, and said, Dia, I have a room full of bikes, do you need them? And I said, of course I need them. I need all of your bikes. So these are confiscated bikes. <laughs> There's a room on your campus somewhere with like a ton of, I can't say bad words. There's a ton of stuff in there. Um, you can use that. Furniture, uh, you know, fridges, washers, dryers. Access those spaces. Um, our, our guests have access to college facilities, the college farm, the cafeteria. There's lots of cool stuff. Think about um, your friends as part of that asset-based community of practice. What can your partners give? So here are some examples. So in short, harness the power of your various communities. Um, Post-hosting. Um, when a family leaves our campus, we help them find um, cheaper or um, affordable housing. We help them negotiate for better leases. This is important. When we negotiate, we negotiate as Guilford College. 
So when I go across the street to the Legacy Apartments and we negotiated a lease for our first guest, it was not just DIA. It was the Every Campus a Refuge program at Guilford College. And so we were able to get him free utilities as part of his rent. So think about the cachet that you have as a campus and use that voice, use that power. Um, we continue to um, visit with them, to share meals, to assist as needed, and we involve our former guests. As I said, the first guest that we hosted is now employed by us to perform interpreting and translation for the current family. Ways to improve, always ways to improve, improve, of course. For us, it's tracking volunteer hours and time, meeting challenging needs, especially medical needs. There was a time, for example, when we had to provide immediate medical assistance, um, but that was, you know, eventually, I mean, we figured it out and, and, and um, we got that taken care of. And of course, the dependency and boundary concerns, again, you wanna make sure that you emphasize the strength-based model. Um, we are currently working on best practices, so we want to make a manual that we share with campuses and say, if you want to be an eCar campus, here's how you do it. Um, and that's a really wonderful way of getting input from all of our partners to provide um, their feedback on how you can be a partner in this community. Um, there are four other eCar campuses in Ohio, Florida, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. One of them is a community college. So clearly, if a community college can do it, there's no excuse for Duke. Um, really, this is where we're going at the end of this talk. Um, yes, and lots of other schools are interested. I'm talking to um, many schools this semester um, who are really interested in sort of moving forward with becoming a refuge campus. Um, ECAR has done well just in terms of publicity. The reason we got on the map to begin with was because John Blust, uh, representative from North Carolina, uh, publicly asked our college to rescind its offer to host a Syrian family. And Jane Fernandez was like, a no. And so <laughs> they're like, oh my God, the college that resisted, don't. So, um, so that's what happened. Um, and if you'd like to learn more, please email me. Um, here are some emails. Look us up on everycampusrefuge.org. Um, follow us on Facebook. Um, I'd love to tell you more. So I am happy now to take questions. Was that 45 minutes? time for some questions and I have a microphone here if anybody would like to um, offer a question um, to help with the acoustics in this space um, somebody has to go first it can be me but it can be one of you as well Dave Allen you mentioned I think a um, the, that your first guest is now employed Mm -hmm. in some in a translating role. I'm mm -hmm. wondering if there's other staffing that you that supports ECAR or and and sort of what proportion of your time as a faculty member is is devoted to coordinating this big picture. A lot. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? So what I've done over time because we're the first ECAR campus, we're doing a lot of things organically um, and then we're figuring out how to build infrastructure. So Hopefully what the ECAR minor does is that we get students who are getting credit for doing the kind of work that I do, or now our ECAR uh, alumni fellow does. 
Um, so when you have students who are volunteer coordinators or donation coordinators or, or students, which is what we're hoping to do with a theory and praxis course, build into their final project an advocacy or problem-solving initiative, then you can spread out the work. Um, but I, to go back to your initial question about employment, yes, I think that's a very valuable way of thinking about it. I will say that our ECAR campus has been focused on serving the folks with the most need. So the Ohio campus, they were very selective about the refugees that they wanted to host. They wanted to host somebody who was an Arabic instructor um, because they wanted to offer that person employment in their Arabic language department. And that's what happened. Um, his partner uh, works in IT, right? So that's a really cool way of, of figuring out what gaps do you have and how you can employ people. At Guilford, we're the kind of campus where somebody says to us, we've got an 11-member family coming in. They might separate them if you don't take them. We're the campus who says, yes, that's the family we want to, we want to serve. Um, that unfortunately means that for the time being, um, that family is still figuring out, learning. They have many small children. Um, so I would say that I think it's incredibly important to think about sustaining folks beyond ECAR, um, but that that's not always doable if you are, in, as in our case, serving the folks with the highest needs. Does that answer your question? Oh my God, I remember you. Didn't you take class with me? <laughs> you know everything already. Yeah. Hey, Dia. Um, so my question was, uh, uh, what kind of, what are like the main barriers that you've seen um, with ECAR at different universities or at Guilford itself? Like, what have been the issues that kind of pop up? You mean uh, like issues on campus or like Trump or yeah, what? Well, the obvious political issues, the executive orders, the immigrant phobia, the Arabophobia, the xenophobia, the Islamophobia, the fact that we might not be getting refugees if this ban is upheld, uh, even if it's a four-month ban, that means effectively no more refugees for a long time because, as I said, most of those refugees will have timed out in their process. I don't know if you know, there's a process for refugee vetting, and you have a few months to make it, um, and then if you time out, then you have to start the process all over again. And, so we need to be flexible and adjust. Does that mean that we can support the refugees who are already here? So on, the, on a larger scale, the problem is that we are becoming a country inhospitable to refugees and immigrants. We should see this as an opportunity to advocate louder and harder for refugees and immigrants. And, but like I said, by putting our money where our mouth is. And so not just having conversations about it, by actually opening our doors and becoming sanctuaries and refuges. Um, on a smaller scale, I think administrators find this idea very weird. It seems radical to them, but not like in the good way, like not like radical hospitality, not like, like the root, like how do you like build community, but radical as in strange. It's, and I think it's just going against that idea of strangeness, that this is unusual. We host students on our campus. People come and stay on our campus. We're not, you know, campuses are, well, are built for this. So I think um, you'll need to work against administrators who have a hard time seeing this as an educational um, opportunity. Um, and that, like I said, it, the issue of risk and liability always comes up. Just remind people that uh, you need to check your college insurance. If they insist on that, that there are other things at play and your community needs to have more conversations about fear of others.
I'm, I'm aware that uh, with people we know personally and some human rights groups that hospitality is just built into cultures and uh, maybe it was easier before the world became so disrupted with war but I just wonder if sometimes we Americans might need you probably do this naturally with being from Palestine but we Americans might need to envision an actual experience of a hospitality feeling you know and I wonder mm. if you have had that work for you. Mm. I think it's a very strange concept for a lot of people. What, becoming a campus refuge? No, or, to, or hospitality. For, a, for a family, to just drop everything for a guest that happens to come by, mm. to have that feeling of hospitality. We've had this experience with some of our close Muslim friends, and the kind of hospitality you feel it's like kind of like you set aside time and busyness, you know, and you just grow up with this. Mm. I just wonder if we don't need, you know, maybe partly on film, partly potlucks and all that have that feeling about them. And you get more inspired when you see this. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard for me to think about cultures in those very essential terms. Um, I mean, I grew up in Jordan. Certainly there are times when anybody could drop by and there were times when people couldn't. Uh, and I'm in, I live now in the American South. There are moments of hospitality that seem very familiar to me. Um, so I don't, I don't know about that. I'm, I, I can't speak on that. I can say that in my own personal experience, I don't think that there's naturally anything about Americans, whoever that is, I mean, that's such a broad term, that would make them, you know, averse to hospitality. It's not... In the blood, um, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to answer that question. I think there are certainly ways in which we can foster feelings of um, friendliness and compassion and empathy and kindness. I don't think we're working against Americans' nature to do that. I'm sorry. I hope that somehow answered your question. I'm going to say, in my experience, I've experienced moments of hospitality here, as I did in Jordan, um, and that they were not necessarily attached to a particular cultural or ethnic identity. Well, that's hopeful. It's a hopeful idea. Yeah. I wanted to ask a question about health insurance. Uh -huh. Because what did Guilford do for that? So uh, when... Health care. Um, yes. So, yeah. Health insurance. Uh, Frances was asking about health care. Um, so refugees, when they enter, they immediately should get social security numbers and they're immediately on Medicaid. But Medicaid is how many months, Walid? Eight months? Nine months. So within that time, the hope is that they will become employed and get health insurance through their work. Every campus or refuge, do you want to answer that? Do you have? Okay. How do they get that? Uh, it just comes with the refugee paper. Okay, but that is, extends beyond Medicaid? Yeah, it, extends, it covers more things than regular Medicaid, but that's only for nine months after that. Yeah. Depends on what job they get. They're either on regular Medicaid, like all other U.S. citizens, mm -hmm. or they, if they have a job, then mm -hmm. they, their employer's yeah. insurance. Yeah. So t to answer your question, Francis, we did not have to provide health insurance or health care. Um, that comes uh, as part of the package that refugees get when they come. guys were making me work walking back and forth. <laughs> I should have worn my pedometer today. I'm going to pass this down the road. 
Hi, uh, thank you. You mentioned that uh, this is not a dog and pony show and that you don't ask the families to do things. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you integrate them into um, the educational effort of the university. Like you also talked about how they serve um, or they participate in an educational process for students. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if you could talk as an educator mm -hmm. about how you help students grow in knowledge as they relate to these yeah. families without turning the families into instruments of Yes, no, that's growth. a very important question. So it's important to know that the students that I'm talking about are all signed up as trained volunteers. So it's not, um, in other words, if you think about every campus refuge, it's, it's kind of like a class. If you sign up as a trained volunteer and you get the training and you get background, background checked and you get told or you, know, you understand the ethics of the program, um, then you engage in volunteer tasks, resettlement tasks. Now the hope is that as that happens, it, in other words, you're experiencing the resettlement process, right? And you are doing things to assist in resettlement that you are learning about what it's like to resettle in Greensboro. And that through that process, you're learning about the gaps, the obstacles, the benefits, the joys, the challenges of resettlement in Greensboro. So it, they are not, the, 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 the folks that we are serving or the folks that we are hosting, um, we are not hopefully learning at their expense. Rather, in working with them, we are learning about the processes that take place in resettlement and help improve them. Does that answer your question? So it's in the, in the doing. So the, stu the student is constantly focused on the volunteer task, right? Not, not it, this is a person that now is a vehicle for me to just, you know, exploit for my education. But I ask them to reflect, hopefully in the ECAR minor, that's what's going to happen, reflect on what they've done in terms of assistance with resettlement, what experiences that they have going to the DMV, um, that they could think about in terms of improvement, in terms of advocacy, in terms of, you know, just whatever their discipline is. Um, so it's that it's sort of a kind of a byproduct. It happens parallel to volunteering. Does that answer your question? Yes. One more? Do we have, we have time for one more question? I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the level of commitment that you ask of the students. You mentioned a training they go through, but mm -hmm. is there the expectation that they commit for a year or two years, no. or is there any kind of continuity and mm -hmm. who you bring in contact with your guests? Yep. So um, since we started a year and a half ago, we have so far 100 trained volunteers. Those are not all students. So there's continuity in terms of staff and faculty. The students will c come and go, right? So clearly there won't be continuity beyond um, the, you know, the four years, but even within that, the family is on our campus for a period of months. What will happen, hopefully in the ECAR minor, is that, oh, did I forget to mention this? Uh, the college gave ECAR a house. So now there's a house dedicated to every campus a refuge, which means that we can host families regularly and consistently. And so that semester by semester, those group of students who are in the theory and praxis course are the volunteers with that family. So, so there's consistency and continuity there. Does that? Thank you. Um, would you all please join me in saying thank you to Dr. Abdo? Thank you. Thanks.
So thanks to you all for coming out tonight and for hearing about this important work. Um, we invite you to come back each month until the end of the semester and um, have a good evening. Man, the room makes the applause seem like so much like the, yeah, no, like.